Welcome to the Refuge Recovery Podcast. Refuge Recovery is a worldwide community of people who are using the practices of mindfulness, compassion, forgiveness, and generosity to heal the pain and suffering that addiction has caused in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. This podcast is for all those interested in and all those already practicing refuge recovery to find freedom from addiction of all kinds. To support this podcast and your refuge recovery, please donate using the link in the show notes. We're at the final guided meditation from the back of the book, which is equanimity. And um, anybody who's joining us for the first time tonight, I just want to um, make sure that everyone is aware that this is not a refuge recovery meeting. Refuge recovery meetings are peer led and um, hopefully there's no Q and A's happening <laughs> in refuge recovery meetings the way that I'm doing them here. Uh, this is an offering of Refuge Recovery World Services by me, Noah Levine, the author of the book, the founder of the program, um, just to be of service, just to, uh, an offering, uh, hopefully, of, um, that's useful to, to everybody just out of my own generosity and the, the board of directors and the, the nonprofit organizations desire to help support um, people with a little bit of teacher-led uh, access. As you're probably aware, Refuge Recovery is threefold. There are the peer-led meetings, which are all around the country, all around the world now. There's a, a new meeting in, uh, in uh, Moscow, Russia, and in other uh, foreign countries. Uh, so peer-led really is so core to what we're doing for the meetings. But then also the vision that I brought to the program includes teacher-led uh, retreats, teacher-led, uh, the importance of having a relationship with, with a teacher. Um, and not that I have to be that person for you, but it is part of who I am and what I do. And, um, and then also professional addiction treatment services uh, is one of the visions, being able to use the, utilize this process for people in uh, detox and outpatient and inpatient residential um, experiences. And we had that, uh, unfortunately, it closed a couple years ago and we're thinking about how to uh, do it in an, uh, again as a nonprofit, um, how to start uh, offering treatment uh, through this refuge recovery model through the World Services uh, Program. So anyways, we're, we're working on that. Again, welcome everybody who's joining us. And um, just a couple of brief things about equanimity before we do the meditation. Uh, we have just gone through the loving kindness practice and the um, compassion practice and the appreciative joy practices. This uh, comes in this um, uh, container, this teaching of the four qualities of the heart, of the awakened heart, of the awakened mind. Um, this is what the Buddha reported it happened to him when he woke up. He said, when I started to see clearly, uh, there was a natural loving kindness for all living beings. When I woke up and saw clearly uh, how much pain there is in this world, there was a, there was a natural uh, ability that I had developed to uh, meet the pain with compassion, with, with mercy, with um, uh, tenderness or, or forgiveness. Um, and, and likewise, I think it was last week we went through uh, that quality of heart, which is empathizing with joy, appreciative joy, empathetic joy. And, and equanimity comes as the fourth heart quality, heart practice. Uh, he says, and even though I cared deeply for all living beings, compassion for all beings, and appreciation for all beings, and loving kindness towards all beings. He said, also, I understood in my awakening that every living being has their own karma, and their happiness or unhappiness does not depend upon my wishes for them, but depends on their own actions, that everyone 
you, and you, you get this, right? We all get this. When we start to understand that happiness is an inside job, that it is a, um, it's our own responsibility. Nobody else is gonna make us happy. We have to do our own letting go, our own developing compassion, kindness, forgiveness. We have to do that for ourselves. And it's the same with everyone else. Everyone has to do the work for themselves. Uh, we can talk more about this after the meditation, but uh, in some ways, um, this is the uh, Buddhist, I think last week I said, this is kind of the Buddhist uh, Al-Anon or the Buddhist practice most pertinent if you have any um, codependency or uh, addiction to people <laughs> uh, and trying to control people. Um, then this is the practice that's really called for in seeing everyone through the eyes of compassion and appreciation and kindness, but also uh, equanimity, uh, having that balance. I love you, but I know I can't control you. Uh, I care about you, but I know I can't end your suffering. You have to do that yourself. So having this balancing equanimity attitude. I'll read a couple pages from the end of the core text and then we'll jump into the meditation, the uh, core text of refuge recovery, which ends on page 102. Towards the end of page 100, becoming aware of what we are addicted to and becoming committed to getting free from our misidentification with and addiction to our minds thoughts and feelings requires a level of renunciation, a level of being honest with ourselves and realizing that we keep doing the same thing over and over and the outcome is unsatisfactory every time. Part of our work in recovery is to break the denial of believing that things are going to be different this time and then beginning to change our inner and outer actions. I'm gonna skip the uh, autobiography in five parts and jump to the bottom of page 101. All of this points towards breaking the addiction to pleasure and aversion to pain. We each have to ask ourselves, what do I really want in my life? Short-term satisfaction of craving or long-term peace of mind and the healing of the heart that will lead to a full recovery of my true nature. When we choose the path of wanting long-term peace, freedom, and true happiness in our lives, rather than the short-term satisfaction of pleasure and desire, then the effort to train the mind is there. This has been our experience. When we really keep in the forefront of our thoughts that our intention in this life is to recover and be free, then being of service, practicing meditation, and doing what we need to do to get free becomes the only rational decision. This takes discipline, effort, and deep commitment. It takes a form of rebellion, both inwardly and outwardly, because we not only subvert our own conditioning, we also walk a path that is totally counter-cultural. The status quo in our world is to be attached to pleasure and to avoid all unpleasant experiences. Our path leads upstream against the normal human confusions and suffering. The commitment to this path of recovery will take stamina, steadfastness and perseverance are a necessity if we are to continue on a long-term spiritual path. We wish we could say that there's some magical secret to all this, that this or that is what it takes to persevere, but we have no easy solution. Perhaps it's as simple as courage, the courage to begin, to continue, and to complete the task we took birth for. Yet fear is, has been, and perhaps always will be our constant companion on this path of recovery. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the willingness to act in spite of being afraid. Freeing yourself from the addiction to your mind is like going off into the wilderness to a place you've never been before. It makes perfect sense that we wanna stay attached to our suffering 
because it is so familiar. What we most fear is not darkness. We know the darkness all too well. What we are most afraid of is the light. The light of freedom shines from the unknown, undiscovered truths of compassion, kindness, appreciation, forgiveness, and the wisdom to respond with care and understanding to all beings. But like any arduous journey that feels like it will never end, the path of recovery has both rewards and a destination. Along the way, as we face our fears and confusion, we begin to realize that the process is perfectly safe and well worth the effort to persevere. The closer we get, the less scary it becomes. And we make it through the dense forest. We can enjoy the views from a higher elevation on the path. So I'll jump to the guided meditation that we do in our meetings. It starts on page 271, equanimity meditation. Find a comfortable way to sit. Allow your attention to settle into the present time experience of the body. Closing your eyes, begin to relax any physical tension that is being held in the body by softening the belly. Relax the eyes and jaw and allow your shoulders to naturally fall away from the head. After a short period of settling into present time awareness, Begin to reflect on your deepest desire for happiness and freedom from suffering for both yourself and others. Reflect on your desire to serve the needs of others and to be compassionately engaged in the world. Reflect on both the joy and the sorrow that exists in the world. Allow your heart's truest longing for truth and well-being to come into consciousness. With each breath, breathe into the heart's center, the acknowledgement of the need to balance your pure intention of creating positive change with the reality of your inability to control others. Begin repeating the following phrases. All beings are responsible for their own actions. Suffering or happiness is created 
through one's relationship to experience. It's not by experience itself. The freedom and happiness of others is dependent on their actions, not on my wishes for them. Relax into the reverberations of this balance between harmonizing the heart's deepest desires to help others with the mind's wise response of acknowledging our limitations and powerlessness. Continue to repeat these phrases. All beings are responsible for their own actions. Suffering or happiness is created through one's relationship to experience, not by experience itself. The freedom and happiness of others is dependent on their actions, not on my wishes for them.
stay as consistent and present as possible. Each time you get lost in thoughts or fantasy, come back to the present and return to the phrases. All beings are responsible for their own actions. Suffering or happiness is created through one's relationship to experience, not by experience itself. The freedom and happiness of others is dependent on their actions, not on my wishes for them.
all beings are responsible for their own actions. Suffering or happiness is created through one's relationship to experience, not by experience itself. The freedom and happiness of others is dependent on their actions, not on my wishes for them. As we end this meditation, let go of the phrases and bring attention back to your breath and body. Investigate the sensations and emotions that are present now. Then, whenever you're ready, allow your eyes to open and your attention to come back to your surroundings. So a couple of reflections on the themes here. I know they're pretty straightforward and obvious, um, but maybe not so obvious to us before uh, examining our lives and our minds and our relationships. And you know, pretty simple statements. All beings are responsible for their own actions. And then us checking in, like, do I know that? Do I live, do I live my life understanding that? And maybe the question is, how would your level of happiness be uh, any different if you really saw through this lens of all beings are responsible for their own actions? If we really understood karma, would that change your level of suffering? Would that increase your level of ease? If you really understood everyone is karmically responsible? One of the um, connotations I think there is that uh, sometimes we hold resentment because we think we need to punish people who have behaved unskillfully. And, but actually, if we fully uh, understood karma, we would understand that they are uh, fully responsible for their unskillful behavior and own that karma and aren't getting away with anything and that we don't actually need to suffer at them by holding on to resentment. So that's one of the ways that I think that this is quite helpful. That second phrase that we do in the meditation, suffering or happiness is created through one's relationship to experience, not by experience itself. Also radical Buddhism, 
<laughs> because we go around blaming our happiness or unhappiness on what's happening. Like, of course I'm unhappy because you did this or you did that or the world is like this. How, you know, how could I be happy with this political strife, with this ignorance? Um, and we blame what's happening outside of us on our unhappiness. But Buddhism is offering us this empowerment, this experience, these tools to say, actually, you can be happy. You can be at ease in the midst of ignorance. <laughs> you can be compassionate in the midst of pain. You can be calm in the midst of chaos. That <laughs> uh, is not, our happiness is not dependent on what's happening in the world. I mean, fucking thank God. Because if we needed to wait for the world and other people and to be, you know, wise and skillful and kind and just, then like happiness would just be impossible. It would just not even be an option because um, it's so clear that we live in a world of, of confusion and ignorance. But this teaching gives us that, uh, and this practice gives us that, of course, my happiness depends on how I'm responding to what's happening, not what's happening. It is possible to respond with compassion, with forgiveness, with appreciation, with equanimity. It's possible to be at ease in the midst of the reality of the world that we live in. So that's like personal equanimity. We can be equanimous whether life is incredibly pleasurable or incredibly painful or kind of boring and, you know, groundhog day, whatever it is for you, stuck at home for months or whatever the, you know, reality of your life is, equanimity, uh, is this level of acceptance. It's like this. I don't have to be out in the world all of the time to be happy. That's in, in my own heart. I don't have to be engaged in in-person meetings to be happy. That's, you know, happiness is inside. Of course, being engaged in community is great for most people. <laughs> of course, Zoom isn't the most pleasant way to connect, but it's what we got right now. So uh, this is pointing towards, it's not the world's responsibility. It is our responsibility. And, you know, that play on that word responsibility is so good. And when you flip it and, you know, that we do have the ability to respond. Without meditation, there's not that much hope, I don't think. <laughs> kind of a biased meditation person, but um, the untrained mind is reactive and is looking to the world for happiness. But the more we meditate, the more we train our mind, the more we see that there's no happiness to be found in the world. There's lots of pleasure, there's lots of fun, there's lots of things worth doing and people worth helping and causes worth being engaged in, lots, you know, lots. I love the world on so many levels. But to try to hold the world responsible for our happiness, others or political systems or cultural norms or, or religion for, you know, what a dead end that is. Buddhism is, you know, the uh, path that says it's in you, what you're looking for is here uh, and and for us in recovery it's actually sort of the definition of recovering that which has always been here uncovering recovering uh, it's totally internal it's not some sort of external experience of recovering it's getting back 
to your own heart, your own goodness, and learning to be at ease uh, by seeing ourselves clearly. I'm responsible for my happiness. And now I have these tools when applied, meditation, renunciation, service. I have these practices that make me feel happy. And it's not about the other people or the world. So then that last piece um, of the phrase, freedom and happiness of others is dependent on their actions. It's not on my wishes for them. So the more we understand our, our own personal responsibility, hopefully then we can train our mind to say, as I started with that, no matter how much we love, no matter how much we care, we can't control each other. We can't make anybody else happy. Everyone is responsible for their own happy. Not my, you know, we can, and, you know, we're following up this practice of wishing in loving kindness. Wish, may all beings be happy. Wish in compassion, may all beings be free from suffering. Wish in appreciation, may all beings have happiness and joy in their lives. And then this is coming in and saying, but remember, <laughs> everyone's happiness is not dependent on your wishes. All of that loving kindness, compassion for all beings, those well-wishing, that goodwill that we develop in the meditation practice is for us. That's for our heart to be altruistic, to be kind, to be compassionate. It's not to fix everyone else. It's so that we become a force of kindness, a force of compassion, of appreciation. And uh, my own sense is that the best thing that we can do is be a, uh, a model of recovery. All of us hopeless addicts <laughs> that have found hope, all of us drunks and you know addicts that then live a sober life and people that were like, wow, that person was a lost cause, see like, oh, what's, what are they up to now? Oh, they're meditating. They're being of service to other people. They're engaged in uh, trying to, to be compassionate and kind and, and that, you know, what's, that's gonna inspire people more than any way that we become preachy or clingy or, and so I feel like a lot of this equanimity is like be a model, develop that in your heart and everyone else will see it in your actions and your attitudes in the world. So I'm open to questions. Maybe the last thing I'll say here, when I think about equanimity and everyone has their own karma, I do have a little bit of um, concern about how this can be misused or we can uh, maybe uh, remember it always has to balance compassion um, compassion says, let me do all that I can to help. And if you just cherry pick equanimity as people, religious people, spiritual people have done, it can be this, um, like, well, everyone has their own karma, so I don't need to do anything to be of service. So, you know, compassion says, let's dedicate our lives to being of service, to trying to create a positive change on this planet. Equanimity understands that uh, we're not going to be able to save all living beings, but let's keep trying anyways, <laughs> right? We're not gonna be able to, you know, every addict isn't gonna get sober, isn't gonna recover, but let's dedicate our life to creating communities where um, there's the potential for addicts to come and get supported and learn meditation and learn renunciation and learn the Dharma even though we know we're not gonna end addiction. Let's, you know, be of, you know, out of compassion for addiction, out of gratitude for our own recovery. I hope that makes sense. I know that, um, you know, there's 
whole cultures where they've used this sort of like karma actually to oppress, to say like, it's, it's your karma um, to having, you know, in the Buddha's lifetime, one of the philosophies, and I think continues in India to this day on some levels, is that if you're born into uh, the caste system, it's your karma that you uh, are born into whatever social hierarchy of this completely human-made system. And then they use that to oppress people in the, um, in the racial uh, oppression that the caste system is. And they say, well, it's, it's their karma having been born into that caste. So we have to be really careful to not misuse or misunderstand this kind of equanimity teaching around everyone has their own karma to then say like, well, then I don't have to help. I don't have to be engaged in the solution because it's their karma. It's our karma to help. It's our karma to be of service, to be generous, to be wise. This is one of the many ways where the Buddha was uh, incredibly radical and, you know, against sexism and against racism and, you know, very much around a teacher of equality, a teacher that understood all living beings have the power and potential to wake up, regardless of our background, regardless of our gender, uh, our race, our ethnicity, our religious background, any of that. Uh, human being, you know, Buddhism as humanist psychology. We can wake up. We can recover. So, um, what are your thoughts, questions, comments? Amanda, go for it. Hi. Um I understand that we can add a layer of suffering on top of experience uh, with addiction or aversion. Um, but I, I, I always kind of have a sticking point with phrases similar to one of the phrases in the meditation. And I would really appreciate if you could like speak to it um, or tell me what I'm missing. Um, phrases like suffering or happiness is created through one's experience, uh, one's relationship to experience, not by experience itself. I guess where it sticks for me sometimes is um, like the experience of trauma. Like I don't understand how trauma could be experienced as anything other than suffering. Um, and maybe I'm just being too literal or I'm too much of a psychology major and not enough of an, uh, however you called it, extreme or radical Buddhist. Um, but if you could, yeah, like maybe help me parse that piece of trauma. Yeah. Um, thank you for the question, Amanda. It's an impor it's, uh, important distinction that I should have made um, that we're constantly trying to make in Buddhism is that there is a huge difference. So, you know, Buddhism and refuge recovery as a, a Buddhist uh, informed process uh, has this really radical promise that it's possible to not suffer. But we're very clear here in refuge as, and, and Buddhism is very clear that there's a huge difference between pain and suffering. And so uh, what is understood is that pain is unavoidable. And um, when we have had big traumatic experiences in our past that were incredibly painful, there's something about our mind and our survival instinct that replays those over and over. And uh, it makes, you know, we relive that pain and we have all of this uh, way that there's a feeling of threat when there's not even threat anymore. Yeah, and, um, right is sometimes but so that's something that the brain does and it is like a, a way that we can suffer quite a bit around the past pains yeah. what's being said here is that if we train our mind um, 
we will actually resolve some of the, you know, the, the way that our mind works will change. Meditation, long-term meditation will do for us, uh, similar to like some of the psychological um, techniques of EMDR or somatic experiencing. Or, yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the trauma resolution tools are based in kind of Buddhist mindfulness. Right. Um, so the more we meditate, the more we'll resolve those painful memories will never leave us. We just won't be, you know, what's called uh, triggered or activated. Um, the trauma of our past is always going to be the trauma of our past. No matter how enlightened we get, how recovered we get, the pain that we've lived through, we'll always remember that. We're not going to meditate uh, our, our way past uh, it, just past suffering about it. Okay. When fully meet our pain with compassion, when we meet the past with forgiveness, with understanding, with then we just have painful memories that are met with compassion and there's no suffering anymore. When we fully forgive ourselves or forgive others, then it's just, oh, that was really painful. Uh, uh, and now I have compassion for it. And it's no longer uh, a trigger. It's no longer something that activates me. It's just pain, not suffering. Right, okay. So, and that's very important. You know, we're, there's nowhere that Buddhism is saying, uh, you know, you'll get rid of the pain. Really what it's saying is, and, and in recovery, it's so important for us, is that we'll learn to increase our tolerance for adverse experiences, unpleasant experiences will become more and more tolerant, more and more compassionate. And, uh, but there's, you know, because pain is unavoidable. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thanks, I'm glad it helps. Nice to see you. Welcome. Elle, question. Hello. So um, I was uh, thinking about the, um, you know, that the kind of Dan Siegel image of the neurobiology of trauma, which is the limbic brain is the one that's triggered. And he says it's compassion that allows the neocortex to do the comforting. It's okay. It's okay. And that compassion is the thing, is the experience that creates new neural pathways and that I actually feel that from um, the meditations. I feel my, neo my neocortex having time to come on and say, that's the wise adult saying, oh, but that's not happening now. Not like, you know, pick up your big girl panties, idiot. But, you know, like, um, yeah, like, oh, it's okay. So it's compassion that brings the, um, equanimity for myself and others online. I really like that model. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I, I uh, agree. I think that that is kind of how it works is like the more we develop the kindness and compassion, uh, the more uh, it gets rooted, the neuropathways in our brain and uh, we become more at ease with it. Richard. Go ahead. Hey, Noah, thanks for teachings. Um, this um, topic right now reminds me of a story I heard about the Dalai Lama. Uh, he, there was a group of um, Tibetan refugees that were coming to see him and one of the members of the group um, was his cook that had cooked for him in Lhasa. And um, they had all been, uh, all these uh, refugees had been tormented by the Chinese had been in um, camps. And when the Dalai Lama met with his previous cook, uh, the cook was in tears seeing him, of course, because they were so glad to see him. And he said to his holiness, I, I'm so sorry, he kept apologizing. I'm so sorry, I almost lost it. I almost lost it. And his holiness wondered what he meant. He said, well, tell me what that means. He says, when the Chinese tortured me and, and were so cruel to me and the people around me, I almost lost my compassion. 
and that speaks to me about what we're talking about is um, our, our reaction or not reaction, but our response to our experience is what matters, not the experience itself. Anyway, I just wanted to throw that into the mix. Yeah, thanks. It's a, it's a beautiful story. Um, and it, it, it does, uh, you know, show that a lifetime of Dharma practice can bring us to a place where we have so much compassion that even uh, the worst kind of traumas can be met with compassion. And, uh, you know, that, that's, it's a very interesting, right? Because that's like a story from somebody who's been developing compassion their whole lifetime and then has a trauma. And I think almost all of us are on the other side <laughs> where we're like, uh, I didn't have any practice. I had all of this pain and trauma and now I'm here trying to use the Dharma to heal it, uh, you know, to recover and to not drink and not use and not let my pain push me into all of those addictive uh, behaviors. Um, and it's a slow but uh, gradual and, and reliable path that the meditative path offers to this sort of internal balancing and healing and recovering that um, we're so fortunate to, to have. Okay, last one, Sal, we'll leave it here. Noah, thank you very much for all your teaching. And uh, I love, I think one of the most profound things I read in your whole book, for me anyway, was that middle statement of the equanimity where, you know, where the situation is not the problem, it's my reaction to the situation. For me, the same situation can bring both happiness and sadness. Like whenever I see a piece of cake, I'm happy, I wanna eat it, I wanna eat it. As soon as I'm done eating it, I feel guilty about eating it and the sadness comes on. And of course, I'm not comparing that to trauma, but I'm just saying that, but I am comparing it to my life trauma I grew up in an abusive household and everything. But when I learned to stop judging the situations that happened to me, I didn't forget them. They're still in my mind. I live with them, but I have to stop judging them as good or bad. And that has freed me from them. And that has, that's where my equanimity came, from the freedom I let go of them. They're there. They are there. They're my experience. But I don't judge them. They're just my experience. Thank you. Welcome. Thanks, Al. Good to see you. Okay, um, I said last one, but um, I'll let Dawn go ahead. Mute. It's my first time uh, talking. Can you hear me? No, we can hear you. Welcome. Okay, great. Thank you. I, uh, uh, I have so much to say, so I'm just going to keep it simple right at the moment, which is... Uh, about suffering and pain and you know everything that I've learned since I've started what a pleasure it is to speak right now is my point so, so let me just get over my anxiety I have anxiety okay now it's done oh, I'm good okay um I feel like I seek out suffering from childhood and I feel like you know there's a lot it's like oh we avoid suffering we avoid suffering we do whatever we can to avoid it. But I almost feel like when things are going well in my life and everything's good, I, I, I create something to make, you know, and I'm sure that I just, I have so many other things I'd love to talk about and I'm going to continue to keep coming to the meetings. But right now I'm just going to keep it at that because I feel like I push people away when things are all good and I, or I create something to you know, um, like, like I don't feel comfortable because maybe I was always suffering or something, if that makes sense. I mean, I'm 40 now. I, I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'll leave it at that. <laughs> it, does, it does make perfect sense. And so many uh, of us can relate to that. And um, you know, the core of 
what's perceived as pleasant or unpleasant. When we talk about running from suffering and trying to avoid pain, for some of us, our conditioning and our wiring and uh, has led to a place where pleasant experiences, success, whatever you want to call it, uh, intimacy, oh, some of those are more painful, are more uncomfortable. Therefore, right, pain, it's like, well, this is supposed to be pleasant. Uh, kind of what Sal was just talking about, like, oh, this piece of cake is supposed to be pleasant. But it's actually not. Like, I, I feel the, the guilt, the shame, the addiction around the sugar, whatever it is, um, what was to most people would be pleasant to me is suffering. And so it's just, we can't compare ourselves to everyone else. We have to, it, that total personal responsibility, we have to just check in deeply through mindfulness. What is my perception of what's going on here? Is it truly pleasant? Is this about feeling worthy or unworthy? Or, this is, a, or is it about being uncomfortable with something that is truly pleasant? Or maybe I just want to create un uncomfortable suffering in order to. I mean, there's that whole. Use in order to get out of, in order to use or or a way to get out of that suffering. Yes. Does that make sense? <laughs> there's that section right there that I read right before the meditation about. Uh, which I missed, and I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. It's it's right at the end of the book. Um, page one, uh, end of the, the, um, the core text, um, where it talks about uh, what we most fear is not darkness. We know the darkness all too well. What we're most afraid of is the light, the light of freedom that shines from the unknown. You know, like I'm stealing that from uh, someone. I mean, I heard it somewhere. Uh, I think I think it might have been Marian Williamson and uh, I don't know somebody else quoted her. But anyways, I just I really related to that. Like, oh, it's not the pain and suffering that I'm so afraid of. I know that. Like, that's <laughs> to me. It's freedom. It's recovery. It's health. It's uh, that's the scarier part that we have to just you know walk up to the edge of and be like, oh, what's what's over there? I've never been comfortable in my own skin. What would that be like? I've never been kind and compassionate. What would that be like? I've never let down my guard and actually forgiven. What would that be like? So, um, like I said, like so many, we can, we, I can relate, you know, you're, you're in the, you. in the right place with, you know, people that have uh, grappled with the same stuff. And, you know, we're here to let you know that, um, this shit actually works and, and is a reliable to develop, you know, our core thing, which is we can develop a reliable internal refuge, but it comes from the willingness to be uncomfortable, sit in meditation and be uncomfortable, sit with your feelings and be uncomfortable, you know, sit with pleasure and be uncomfortable. Uh -huh. you know? Just a little bit that I've gotten, although it's been a lot, but it has changed my, the whole way that I'm looking at things right now, I'm like beginning a chapter of a new novel of many novels of my life. <laughs> so anyways, I'll see y'all again. Thank you so much. I have so much more to say, but you got to shut me up. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So um, we'll leave it there for tonight. The Joseph has just po posted the um, link to the refugerecovery.org donate. Um, this is a freely offered uh, weekly group that I do. All of the donations go to the nonprofit. Please support the nonprofit. If you can afford five, 10, $15 donation, please do that. If you um, are here and you can't afford anything, know that you're welcome to be here regardless of ability to donate. But uh, if you can, please do. And um, I'll see you next Thursday, 5 p.m. Pacific time. May any goodness that comes from our gathering this evening be offered outward in all directions, shared with all beings everywhere. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Refuge Recovery Podcast. 
To learn more about our program of recovery and to connect with others on the Refuge Recovery Path, visit our website, refugerecovery.org, where you will find information, meditations, and links to both in-person and online Refuge Recovery meetings. This podcast is brought to you by Refuge Recovery World Services, a nonprofit created to support our network of refuge recovery groups around the world. Thank you for listening.